0: Hello, 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 everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Live, Learn, Lead, with me, Allison Geskin. Well, my friends, today we are going to talk to one of the most formidable leadership icons of our time, Pam Truchon. Now to say that Pam's credentials in the leadership arena are astounding actually doesn't do her or her work justice. Receiver of more awards than I have shoes from the offices of the Director of National Intelligence, the Central Intelligence Agency, that's the CIA, and the Defense Intelligence Agency, that's the DIA. Get this, being the first female in the US Army trained in technical surveillance countermeasures, forever changing the landscape of what once was male invite only, chaired, facilitated, and instructed for the CIA's Center of Leadership Development, developed leadership and management curriculum for biomedical sciences, security, transportation fields, as well as the US Army, to becoming the designated corporate leadership learning provider for the CIA. And if that wasn't enough, Pam was the recovery team leader at the Pentagon in the wake of 9-11. Let's just sit with that for a moment, shall we? This, my friends, is leadership in action. Oh, and I forgot, she quilts in her spare time. (laughs) So buckle in, my friends, for we are about to go on one hell of an inspiring ride. One where we learn the leadership, the good, the bad, and the ugly, through the eyes of this incredible woman. welcome Pam. Thank you, Allison.
1: I'm glad to be
0: here. Oh my gosh, you have lived such an incredible life and, and are continuing to live such an incredible life.
1: Yep. Starting with the next phase. Starting with yes. the next
0: phase. Isn't that the truth? First of all, I, I want to talk a little bit about what makes Pam Inside Tick. I mean, the things that you have done, things that you've been a part of, what you've led, what you've trained, what you've mentored. Where did that come
1: from? Well, I think where it comes from is that when we were kids, um, there were three of us. And my dad always told us um, when we were little kids, and he got it actually from my grandmother, who said, there's no such word as can't. Mm. And my dad, when we would say, dad, I can't lift this, or I can't do this. And he would say, sure, you can. There's no such word as can't. Uh, Or he would say the other version of it, which was Truchon's don't say can't.
0: (laughs) Truchon's don't. I want a
1: t-shirt that says Truchon's don't say can't. (laughs) So anyway, um, so he would actually, if we said we couldn't do something, he would go and he would make us do Mm. it. Through the years, I realized that not everybody was raised with that kind of mentality, Mm -hmm. Not everybody was raised to believe, sort of to believe in themselves. And really, it taught us so much that just that attitude of, well, you know what, it might take me longer, and it might be harder, but I can do anything I put my mind to. Um, And as a young person, that's huge. Um, When you think about kids today who have you know, some who have no self-esteem. And I think some of it is just helping people realize that they can do anything they want to do. Yeah. for me, the big thing is watching students have the aha moment, an aha moment that will help them help another person and hmm. that's going to eventually help another person and another person and another person. And, and I think that for me, that's it. I would say that's pretty much what I live for yeah. is those aha moments, not just mine, because I have a hell of a lot of fun when they happen, but also <laughs> more so for the other people who can benefit from whatever I can give them.
0: Would you say that it's fair to say that
1: your thoughts produce your results? So Allison's interesting. I had gone back to my hometown, and it's a really small town on the coast of Rhode Island, 3,000 people, bumps up to almost 6,000 in the summer with with this, you know, because it's on the coast. So we had a lot of summer people. And I looked at uh, the house we grew up in and kind of surrounded by big fields and a whole lot of nothing. And then to think about that wow, I did all of this stuff. This is crazy. I just came from a small town. My dad was a teacher. My mom was a nurse. I mean, I couldn't have had any more sort of normal American life than I did. You know, we went to school, we did well in school, or we didn't, and we got in trouble for that, or (laughs) we just... Um, It was very, very normal. I do remember though, when I was a senior in high school, I always wanted to go to Washington, DC. And I always wanted to go there to see the Smithsonian because 300 years or something like that. My mom would pack us a lunch. We'd go into the Smithsonian and we would watch the people who are out on the mall and lots of them had little badges around their neck. And I thought, boy, those are the people who must work for the government. <laughs> how do I get to be one of those people? Fast forward to 2005 and there I was working in the White House, walking out to the mall with my little badge around my neck and my little lunch and went out. And I thought, holy crap, how did this happen? Like It's, it's like pinch me, is this for real? And it was.
0: When do you think that leadership started to play a stronger role in your life in such a way that you ended up being, you know, the designated corporate leadership learning provider at the CIA? Like, how did that happen?
1: You know, it probably, this kind of, not to sound negative, but I think partly it was because. I saw so many examples of horrible leadership, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm not not saying that I didn't directly work for very many of them. I really did work for good leaders. Most of my career, I had maybe two that were really awful who later were fired. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that was part of it. And I had been on a church's board of directors. And they decided that they needed some leadership training. So I put together something I thought, well, I know a lot about certain things, at least goal setting, vision, that kind of stuff. I can put together something. So a friend of mine, hey, can you take a look at this? And she said, yeah, sure. So she looked it over. She goes, this is great stuff. Can you come to my work and train us? I said, yeah, sure. I'll take a day off of work. Go to your your job and help train your people. So she calls me the next day. She says, Pam, I talked to our HR people and they said, how much do you want to charge for this? And I thought about it and I thought, what? Somebody <laughs> wants to pay me to talk to them? Geez, I talk a lot for free, let alone have somebody to, to who wants to pay me for it. So that was the start of it. And I turned it into a leadership development company, which I owned for about eight years. Mm. Um, and that's where I trained while I was still working full time for the government. So I took one day a month off and did leadership seminars
0: all, um,
1: around the mid-Atlantic of the United States.
0: How have you found leadership change over the years? Certainly, you know, who we were five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, we even look at corporate landscapes two decades ago. It's completely different. What have, what's stayed true
1: and what's emerged through that? What have we learned? So fundamentally, um, and I, I don't know that everybody would agree with this, but I fundamentally, I believe that leadership is about influence. Mm. I believe it is about influencing people to be more, do more than they ordinarily would. So if you think about it um, and you think about the military, for mm. instance, and you say to somebody, hey, I want you to run up there. And take that hill when there are bullets flying. Now, if you do not have credibility with your people, guess what they're going to do? Nothing. Mm-hmm. They're not going to go and put themselves in harm's way. Now, that, that's probably an extreme example. But fundamentally, I think leadership is simply about influence. Mm-hmm. Now, how do we influence people of different generations? Today, we have, I don't know whether they would be the millennials or Generation Z who's in the workforce today. And I think how we influence folks is different. Mm. And I think it's especially different post, well, not post pandemic, because we're really not yet post pandemic, Mm -hmm. but being able to influence people through electronic media, um, being able to influence people again, fundamentally, it's about influence and. Earning their respect and trust. Yeah. If you don't earn the respect and trust of your people, then guess what? They're just not going to do what you want them to do. Mm-hmm. And they shouldn't. I wouldn't until I know that I that I do respect this person, and I know that if he tells me to charge up that hill, I'm probably not going to get shot. You know, <laughs> or if you do get shot, you're
0: going to be protected and brought back home. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Exactly.
0: So it's all about trust. It's all about credibility. It's about influence. Has that changed at all in the last, let's say, 10, 15, 20 years? Or is it even now more prominent, more prevalent?
1: I think it's probably more prevalent now. I think but when you look at things like the Great Resignation um, that is happening or is going to be happening very soon Mm -hmm. that I think that it's even more important because people are not going to be willing if they've spent a year or more working from home and or not working at all they're not going to want to go back and work for a boss who's a jerk No, you know it's just really that simple I mean and it's almost so simple it's stupid treat people the way you want to be treated Just because you have a leadership position does not make you a leader. That's right. It also doesn't mean that you have the right to make people's, a third of people's lives, their eight hours a day miserable. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants that. Mm -hmm. And people perform better if they're working for somebody who they know cares about them. They, you know, well, who said it? It might be John Maxwell. People don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. Mm. So I had, when I was working for the government, a very per- participative leadership style. I would ask people, "Okay, what do you think we should do about this problem?" We would have conversations about it, and their input. You know, they knew that I got 51% of the vote, (laughs) but they appreciated the fact that I helped them think through the problems, and then they learned something from that.
0: So they really felt heard. They felt listened to, regardless of the outcome. Mm -hmm. They felt like they had a voice at the table, again, regardless of the outcome. So there was validity and the value piece in what they brought to it.
1: Absolutely. And that
0: creates trust.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then when when a a really terrible event happens, like a Mm 9-11, when I walked into the office on the 12th and said, "Okay, Joe, I need you to do this. Bob, I need you to do this. Shakira, I need you to do this. And they knew that that wasn't my normal operating style. Mm -hmm. It was like, yes, ma'am, we got it. Boom. And they ask a question or not. Any ideas, any problems, any questions, boom, and they would do it. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, well, and when needs must and when, you know, it dictates. Certainly, how you rise during crisis is Mm -hmm. really important and how you lead through crisis is really important. And that's interesting because I want to link that back to, I think right now in the pandemic, we're leading through crisis. Oh, absolutely. And so how are we showing up as leaders? And the other thing I think that's really important that has also been I think unearthed in the last couple of years, or maybe longer for some, is the fact that historically leadership wasn't developed historically, you got to where you were based on your technical skills, so if you were good on a on the front line means you were good in management and you kind of learned the hard or soft way whether you're not these you had these inherent skills or not, or you completely failed at it. But I think that the leadership ladder has changed. And nowadays, we're seeing, you know, okay, great, your technical skills, your IQ in this, those are table stakes. But your EQ is really important because those three elements together create exceptional performance. And then the understanding that, you know, your emotions drive behavior and behavior drives results. And so this whole entire world of developing the self, developing the leader has really taken the forefront in our industry. From your perspective, and you know, you've done a lot in that leadership space. What's the best mix in terms of a creator, a developer, someone who teaches leadership? What do you think is the best mix in order for people to really experience, learn and grow within a leadership development program?
1: Well, I think it's really important to have experiential training. So Mm -hmm. I would say, you know, really, I think one of our best programs that we did was called the Emerging Leaders Program. And one of the things that we did was we actually were able to take people out to the woods. And I really mean the woods, like bears and everything, um, there. <laughs> and we did like obstacle courses and things like that. And I think probably um, I had done an outward bound kind of program too when I was, when I graduated from high school. And it was also another thing that kind of pushed me to do things that I hadn't done before. Uh. And think that's another piece of it because you're teaching people sort of how to confront their fears uh-huh. of maybe i don't know rappelling or climb a mountain or kayaking or any of those types of things you teach them how to confront their their fears then they can encourage others to do the same uh-huh. so with intelligence work specifically it's Your intelligence community is on the front line every single day. They are not. It's always a wartime footing, more so when we're actually in a war, but really even because we always want to know what our adversaries want to do with us, to us, with us, whatever. Almost all of our intelligence community employees can be called upon to serve in dangerous places. And stretch beyond their comfort zones. Now, I think one of the challenges we have is we don't teach people how to overcome those comfort zone challenges. Yeah. So, if our comfort zone is here, anytime you perform either above or below, so I don't know, Allison, if you're a golfer or not, but if you score, <laughs> not better, a very good one. <laughs> I'm not either, actually. I cheat. Um, Actually, I'm terrible, but <laughs> I should cheat. I actually count my scores by the number of golf balls I lose. Anything less than anything less than losing six golf balls means it was a good day, regardless of my score. But let's say you are uh, a halfway decent golfer. Okay. And let's say you go out there and on the front nine, you're used to shooting, a, I don't know what's a reasonable number, 45, right? Okay. So you're on track for a nice nine, but you usually shoot 120. Mm. So what happens, what do you think happens to you on the second nine? Either I'm going to
0: crash and burn, Uh because I've put so much weighty expectations that I'm doing so good. So either I'm going to crash and burn, I'm going to do exactly the same, or I'm going to do even better. So those are my three three choices. And I think what it comes down to is not my skill. I think what it comes down to is what's inside of my head and Absolutely. the story that it tells me. Either I can do it yep. or it's a fluke and I'm going to fail yep. or I can yep. just continue on. It's all about the either the bullshit story or the truth that my head tells me of what I can and what I'm capable of doing.
1: And you're in this field, so you know that. Now, the average person who doesn't know that says, "Oh, wow! I'm at a 45. I, that means I could get a 90 for the whole round. That's really good." And the second half, their game just goes straight to hell in a yep. handbasket. Yeah, because they don't realize that. Uh-oh, I'm above my comfort zone. So what happens is our brains try to talk us back into our comfort zone, mm-hmm. whether a performance is above or below. So how do you continually? So And it's a continual thing. If I'm making a quilt and I happen to have never done a binding, for instance, and I tell myself I can't do a binding, well, guess what? I can't do a binding. But that's that's
0: not the true Sean way, as your dad would say. I'm not allowed to do that. So it
1: takes that equation, it takes that right off the table, you know? (laughs) So what you're
0: saying is leadership is an inside job.
1: There's a huge part of it that is. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm
0: -hmm. It's believing and seeing what you think you're capable of and having a leadership coach or having someone facilitate or you go through a leadership program, you're going to learn, you know, sure, a greater, wider perception of your soft skills and sort of where your strengths are and where you have the ability to grow and learn. But the meat, the value is that it is an inside job. And a truly great facilitator, a truly great coach is going to help that person unlock those ceilings or those, you know. Practical or impractical barriers to achieving way more than they ever thought possible. Yep.
1: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And if you do that well enough, eventually, then the leader becomes the person who also unlocks that for other people. Because once you've figured out how to do it for yourself, it's not too hard to extend that to others. It's addicting. It's addicting. Oh, it's absolutely addicting.
0: Certainly before I started down this you know, leadership journey. And I've always been on a bit of a, you know, discovery to really discover who I am and where I'm supposed to be. But now I see myself working through problems. I can get to A to Z much quicker. And there's less barriers that I put up in my brain in terms of why I can't do that. And so my kind of, transition period becomes much shorter. And so I get really excited when I work with people and their transition period becomes much shorter.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, for right. them to see what they could never, ever see before, for them to really unpack their true potential and then to lead through that in times of crisis, in times of decision-making, you know, even in times of, of um, frankly, terror.
1: It's incredible to see. And when you look at people like, you know, the police officer who's, who – Made a spur of the moment decision at the during the Capitol riots that said, "Oh no, the Senate's that way," mm-hmm. and sent all those homegrown terrorists to the wrong way to save. And how many lives did that guy save? Yeah, you know. Yeah. And here was a guy who was, you know, I guess he was a sergeant, so he was pretty, you know, he was up there a little bit, but he wasn't at the top of the heap. But took a minute and came up with a great solution almost immediately, and it was just and there's a guy that if he were my boss i would follow him anywhere like, yeah absolutely mm-hmm. i think the other thing that we've lost is sort of the the art of apology mm. you know when well, we're trying to go beyond where we've been before and get our folks to come along with us on that journey we're bound to screw up for it's sure it's just going to happen you know i worked for a guy one time and he said to me one day he goes hey, so you ski, right? And I said, yeah. He goes, what kind of slopes? I said, I pretty much stick with the intermediates. He said to me, he goes, Pam, if you're not skiing 20% beyond your ability, you're not skiing at all. Get your butt out there on the expert slopes because you're going to learn more that way. And I was still in the Army and I said, yes, sir, I'll give it a shot. So undoubtedly though, when we do that, we're going to fall more often. We're going to have... Issues probably more often because we are trying to raise above what our comfort zone was. Yeah. So if we screw up, then admit it, apologize, and move on. Mm-hmm. I had a boss. She was a couple of levels above me when I was, um, gosh, this was probably the mid '90s, and she had fired off an email to me, and it was just there was all kinds of wrong. The facts were wrong. Everything was wrong about it. And she and I had a really good relationship. So she came by my desk and she sat down. Hi, how are you doing? And I gave her kind of one word answer. So she's like, is something wrong? And I said, you bet there's something wrong. And I had the email printed out and I kind of tossed it into her lap, which I didn't, which was probably inappropriate because she was a couple of levels above me, <laughs> to say the least, <laughs> inappropriate. So she looked at me for a minute and I said, first off, I don't ever want to get an email like this. If you want to chew me out, okay, go ahead, but do it in person, not by email. Mm-hmm. Secondly, your facts are all wrong. Here's what really happened. Instead, boom, 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 and went through the whole thing. And so she looked at me for a minute. She goes, "Oh, Pam, I am so sorry. I was having a terrible day, and this was just one more thing. And you're right. I didn't get the facts straight. I'm so, I'm so sorry. And I really." I really sincerely apologize. Let me tell you what, if this woman walked into my house today and I haven't talked to her in probably 10 years, if she walked into my house today and said, Pam, let's go and, you know, take over the United Nations or something like that. I'd be like, okay, Gail, I'm on board. You know, um, <laughs> so if I would literally follow her anywhere because she didn't have to apologize. I was her subordinate. This wasn't like a popular thing to do back in the mid 90s. Mm -hmm. But she did. And literally, I would do the same.
0: Bit belt trust. And she kept the trust. She kept the trust. And she Mm -hmm. showed that you were valuable and that your opinion mattered to her. And that she had the humility and enough humility to recognize that she had made a misstep. And then yep. probably did things to course correct that, that misstep.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. So and figure out when you've done something wrong, make it right however you can, and then move on from there. And your people, people will follow folks who treat them well.
0: Why do you think some leaders, I don't want to call lack the ability, because I think everyone has the ability, but why do you think some leaders don't value
1: that? So one of the useful questions is what has to be true for that person for them to behave that way? Mm -hmm. So if you ask yourself the question, well, what might be true for them when they've done something like something egregious to another human being, what would be true for them? And sometimes I think it's that they view it as a sign of weakness to apologize. Mm. There was uh in the hospitality industry where i worked for about four years there was a guy who said no i'll never apologize to an employee and i'm thinking why what a terrible way to live and and none of his employees liked him big surprise right mm-hmm. um when they saw him coming they went the other way basically so it's good um, reason yeah exactly how'd that work so, out for him well They promoted a minimum VP. Part of the reason why I had no, um, I have no sadness about leaving the
0: hospitality industry. (laughs) Why? Why do you think bad leaders, some bad leaders? I don't want to call them bad leaders. I mean, there's all sorts of different leaders. But why do you think some leaders get promoted when they display bad leadership?
1: Some of it is a political game. Some of it is also the fact that maybe they're making money. Uh In the case of the hospitality industry, this general manager who they brought in was um, made tons of money. I mean, last year during the pandemic, the resort made close to a million dollars. About There were six members of the executive team, half of them left. Wow. within their first year now and then if you bring that down to the number of directors who left within this gentleman's first year and gentlemen's a stretch actually the the retention so the corporate office out in california says well what's going on with your retention mm-hmm. you have directors leaving you have managers leaving then you have supervisors leaving so it trickled downhill slowly mm-hmm. um, but the guy made a million bucks during the summer of the worst summer of the pandemic for the company. What do you do then? What do you do then? I know what I would do, which is not what they did but mm-hmm. <laughs> what would you have done? I would have found him a coach mm-hmm. I would have done a bunch of well I would have done an employment employee engagement mm-hmm. survey to see how engaged your frontline employees are yeah. Um, because that's where it all that's kind of where the rubber meets the road they're the folks that are doing the real work usually they're the ones doing a lot of the heavy lifting mm-hmm. it's not so I wonder if sometimes also that people forget when they get to the upper levels do they forget where they came from you know <laughs> do they did they never serve in those kind of positions where it's miserable to you know be a housekeeper in a Uh, hotel chain is it uh, where the work is just not very fun Mm -hmm. did they forget about that do they have the humanity to be able to relate to the people who are kind of at the on the front lines Mm -hmm. and the realization that they're the ones that are most often getting beat up by the circumstances
0: well, for sure. They're, they're the front line. And to be honest, I find it quite fascinating, organizations – and you can spot dysfunction when you go into an organization very quickly because it all depends upon the what's happening within the culture. What's the organizational health? And that you know goes far beyond just the bottom line. But at the end of the day, it's always about your people. And so when you go in and you look under the hood of an organization, you know that it's a people problem, then you have a place in which to start then you have a place in which to draw data from and to be able to co-create and or design a path forward so that everybody's back to winning again.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that
0: organizations fail when they fail to remember that when their people win, they win because it's the people who deploy the strategy. They might sit at the table with 12 people maximum and they will decide in the direction of every single person, every single employee, what's going to happen, how it'll roll out. But they forget it's the people who have to deploy it. And so when you put people at the table to say, well, actually, you know, this is my experience. And, you know, if you guys just did this, or here's this thing that you're missing, or big blind spot here, think about how more powerful an organization would be if it just listened to its people. Yeah,
1: exactly. Mm -hmm. And I think the other, another useful tool would be the 360 Mm -hmm. measuring the appropriate characteristics and throughout. And I wouldn't do that just with the top guy, I'd do it with the whole entire organization. Anybody who supervises people, really, because they have people's whole lives in their hands, their careers, their paycheck, the whole nine yards. I, we had tried to implement that when I was working with DIA and they didn't, they just decided not to because they were kind of afraid of it. And I thought, well, that's kind of a BS excuse. Honestly, if you deployed those in a way that the first year is information, here's the information. Mm-hmm. This is what people think. And if 98 people, 98% of the people who know you think you're a jerk, probably ought to consider the fact that maybe you are, right? The first year, it's a no harm, no foul kind of thing. Mm-hmm. The second year is when you build in the accountability for, make, for the person making those changes, mm-hmm. you know, to do it. Okay, here and now, you know these things. This is how people feel. This is what people are seeing from you now you're accountable for fixing those if you want to continue being a supervisor, director, or whatever. Yeah, so smart. So smart. How do you teach leadership? You start, I think, with the basics. When I developed a program, one of the things that um, I think we do wrong is to expect people to become leaders after a short seminar. Um, (laughs) And, and oh. it just doesn't happen that way. No, you know, doesn't. it's kind of. I took a two day course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you learn in, in bits and then give them time to assimilate that information and put it into practice. Talk them through how they did, what went well, what didn't go well, what are you going to do next? And the, the bottom line of any of that is never to beat them up over what didn't go well. It is always about, well, what are you going to do next time? Mm -hmm. So what, you know, this didn't go as well as it could have. What are you going to do next time? What did you learn from it? And what are you going to do next time? How are you going to apply those learnings to the next time? Yeah. So I think having that time to assimilate whatever the concept is, whether it's communication, whether it's goal setting, whether it's, um, you know, employment law or one of those other dry topics that you have to to know about. Um, The it's a matter of being able to give the students time to assimilate it, and then work through what did and didn't go well afterwards.
0: Yeah. So really, take it for a spin. So what did you hear? Here's your learning. Go take it for a spin. Let's come back. Let's have a good roundtable conversation about what that looked like, what it meant for you, what worked, what didn't, and then how are you going to roll that out moving forward? How are you going to consistently, okay. consistently roll that out moving forward?
1: And I think if we also adjust that to today's forms of learning like for instance if you want to replace the water filter in your refrigerator and you don't really know how to do that you don't you maybe don't even know where it is in your refrigerator what do you do you go to youtube you look up samsung or lg refrigerator or whirlpool whatever your refrigerator is and go Mm -hmm. replace water filter You watch a three-minute video on YouTube and it shows you where it is, boom, you go in and replace it. So I like to think of that as micro learning, where it's bursts at the right time. You knew you needed to replace your filter and you went ahead and did it. You looked it up, watched the video, and then went and did it. So I think part of it is today, and this is also, I think, a generational thing, in that. 20 years ago people didn't do that you didn't have there were no resources online for you to look up a video there were no there there just wasn't a way to do that now there's nothing you can't the information is out there Mm -hmm. so it's really not just about the information it is about what you do with the application of it yeah Mm -hmm. and can you deliver that in bursts Mm. And how do you, as opposed to a whole program, why do I need to sit through a five-day course when really the two days that I really need to know about are Tuesday and Thursday? Those are my weak areas. That's what I want to study. That's where I want to get better. Yeah. So let's say, you know, like right now,
0: I don't want to call it a buzzword because it should never have been a buzzword in the first place. But let's talk about like some (laughs) hot points. Let's talk about diversity and inclusion. Let's talk about, you know, two years ago, communication. Uh, two and a half years ago, it was teamwork. Then let's say four years ago, it was all about strategic orientation and results orientation. Those were the key kind of hallmarks that people were looking for leadership and, leadership and development. What do you think now, and has it changed from when you first started? What were those key competencies that organizations were looking to develop? Has that changed?
1: So I think there has been a realization that the people piece of it is even more important, mm-hmm. um, and I think that the people piece is has to be dealt with, and I think that's going to become even more apparent now. Um, I think that is the the biggest thing. If companies want to keep their talent, mm-hmm. they have to behave or they have to have their leadership behave in ways that shows people you want them there and you value them. And it's not just a money thing. It's not just, you know, the minimum wage, $15 an hour. It's not It's not that. It is really about how people are treated in the workplace. And that's why you see the great resignation um starting to happen yeah and companies that want to keep great talent are going to have to treat them the way they need to be treated
0: mm, you know i've been writing a lot about the war on talent and
1: mm.
0: you know p- some people think the war on talent is an external thing but i actually think the war on talent is internal as well
1: it is absolutely. we, we
0: are actually at war in terms of talent in keeping our talent growing our talent, nourishing our talent, developing our talent so that it, they can help develop our organization and the people that are in our organization.
1: Yep, I agree. It's
0: extraordinary.
1: I agree. And not seeing, you know, in, the, in some places, there it's so dysfunctional that the talent, that most talented people are seen as a threat.
0: Isn't that extraordinary?
1: Isn't that like a weird, weird thing? Wow, but yet person- it happens.
0: Uh, more oh. often than actually we want to admit. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think that happens?
1: Insecurity. People who are insecure. I think it's really, if you, again, you go back to what must be true for the people who behave that way and they don't feel, if they don't feel confident in their own abilities and their own talents and strengths, then they try to pull other people down. Mm-hmm. Uh, who are their biggest targets? Well, that's the people who are making the biggest impact. You know? For sure. How would you approach
0: turning the tides from, what was once a threat into an asset in an organization. So if an organization came to you and said, you know, Pam, we're in a lot of trouble. We've got a war on talent. It's internal. We're bleeding. We can't retain. Um, We can't even attract. We seem to be losing really good people and a lot of really good people. And sure, we can call it the great resignation because everyone wants to work at home. That's not really true. It's so much greater than that. So we've got a problem. We really don't know what to do. We kind of think, though, that we've made our strongest assets into threats and they've left? What, what can we do?
1: So if they're already gone, you're not going to get them back. Number, <laughs> Number two, let's, you know, the first, uh, I'm also, I'm also an EMT. So the first thing you want to do is open the airway so that people can breathe. Mm-hmm. Two, stop the bleeding. <laughs> always, always stop the bleeding. Yeah. Because you have to be able to retain your folks and you have to be able to do it in a way. So I think what I would do is I would I would um, examine the data. I would put in some employee engagement uh, surveys, employee engagement stuff. I would do that all very quickly, though. Get a pulse point right away. This is. Yep. Absolutely. Figure out what's going on and say and and then you actually have some hard data that you can look at and say, okay, this person might be the problem. Maybe it's your VP of HR. Maybe, it's, maybe there's a, a systemic sort of a cancer or uh, a blight mm-hmm. on, the, on the leadership of an organization. And maybe it's going to take switching out a lot of them. Yeah. So, and that's not a great message for your CEO to hear, but if they asked, and then that's where the data led, then they deserve to know that and be able to fix it. Well, the I think other I, thing I think I would do, because there's always going to be those people. There's going to be the people who are kind of not helpful at all. See you later. Get rid of those guys first. Then the next thing I would do is the ones that are kind of in the middle. Those are the folks that you really want to work with. Mm-hmm. The People who are doing things right. They're going to keep on doing things right. You don't have to worry too much about those guys. But those ones are kind of on the fence or in the middle, those are the folks that you can convert. Mm-hmm. Is their vision clear? Is is have people bought into their vision? Have they walked the talk? Have they been able to, are they doing what they said they were gonna do? Mm-hmm. Are they doing thi- or are they doing things that cause the employees to mistrust them? Where mm-hmm. I used to work in the hospitality industry, if they came up with a new idea, the executive team was about as useful as a self flicking ice cream cone. And it, um, they, <laughs> these guys, it was like well, they'd come up with some idea and they'd come out and they'd tell everybody and everybody would go all right now bend over are they going to give us any vaseline or not you know because these guys have not <laughs> come up with any this is here we go we're going to get screwed again you know yeah so it just it, there was such um <laughs> there was really such a lack of trust because of what had happened and sometimes it takes you know lots of getting rid of the folks that caused that mistrust mm-hmm. Unfortunately. You- Do you
0: think it's whether or not they have the guts to do it or do you think it's that they don't know how? Could be both.
1: Mm. Or maybe a combination, actually. Mm -hmm. But I think both of those things, too. Mm -hmm. I think some of it is. Some of it is this, though. Like, if you as the CEO or the executive leadership team, you have set forth a powerful vision. If you go out and you say, "Okay, here's our vision. We want to be the best employer uh, or we want to, I don't know, make the best widget. Just by setting the vision for your folks, you can weed out the people who want to do it or don't want to do it. Here's where the boat's sailing. We're going from point A to point B. Here's point B. It's our vision. Yep. All right? We're over here. If you start messing with the people who are sailing the boat as we're trying to get to point B, we're going to throw your butt overboard if you start interfering with that. Mm-hmm. And the first person who does, you make an example, kill one, educate many. Ooh. <laughs> not, that, not that my military background comes up periodically. <laughs> I don't really mean that, but people learn from that. They go, oh, wow. Sure. Bob, told him that he didn't like the fact that we were making this widget, and he thought we should make this other widget, and and he wasn't cooperative and stuff like that. Most of the people in the organization are going to go, well, Bob was kind of a jerk anyway. He wasn't all that productive. you know. This is probably not Bob's first merry-go-round. Sure. He was an obstructionist to begin with. Right. So. But having a clear vision, I mean, most companies actually skip that step, or mm-hmm. They make something that's so convoluted and so big that it sits on a, in a desk drawer and nobody ever looks at it and it doesn't motivate people to action. But mm-hmm. motivates people to action, then you've got a solid vision. Mm-hmm. Then you build your goals. Your finance, you're part of this is this. You know, HR, you're part of that. It's recruiting the talent to make this widget. You're a part of, you know, I mean, we can do, we put a man on the moon. Mm -hmm. We just put people came down from space two days ago. You know, we can do hard things.
0: Yes, we can do hard things. Just
1: do we have the right leadership to be able to pull it off? And do we do do they know how?
0: Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yes, and do do they they know know how? how? Right. So do you have the right leadership and do they know how? And I think that how piece, that execution piece, it is the most critical because you can have a brilliant strategy. You can have a great vision, great mission, you can you know, ha- have it on the wall, it doesn't go anywhere, but it's on the wall, it looks pretty. But if you can't translate <laughs> that strategy into action, if you can't mobilize the troops using your military analogy, If you can't communicate it in a way that brings everybody together, everyone knows their role. Everyone knows that they're a part of something bigger and special. And we're all going in this direction. And this is what winning is going to look like. And this is my role in that win. That's leadership in action. Yep, absolutely.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. And it works. What do you think is the future for leaders? So I know we've got many listeners that are leaders that hold leadership positions. What would your advice be to emerging leaders, and what would be your advice to leaders that are already leading?
1: It's almost the same. I my first bit of advice would be to read, mm. read leadership stuff. There is so much out there. Um, anything by Stephen Covey, um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, The Speed of Trust. Anything by John Maxwell, he tends to be a little more religious than what I think is appropriate in some workplaces, mm-hmm. but his basic view of leadership is really, really good stuff. Ken Blanchard, mm-hmm. any of his stuff, there's a great book called The One Minute Manager Meets the Monkey. Um, if you're having trouble with Basically, it's the the work is the monkey, and it's the On your back Shift it to to the uh, to the manager. The how the manager can shift it back to the to the employee. Um, there's another great book if you have issues with time management and priority. Man- time management's not really a thing because you don't really manage time. You have we all have the same amount of it. We all get 24 hours in a day, 168 hours a week. Mm-hmm. You don't. It's priority management, yeah. and um, there's a great book called "Eat That Frog." Mm-hmm. If you're not a reader, it's a great. It's a little book. It's like maybe I don't even think it's a half an inch thick, and it's a great book on being able to set priorities and goals for yourself. So, emerging leaders, yeah, I would absolutely recommend that they read as much as they possibly can, listen to anything that they find inspirational, because. Nobody likes a Debbie Downer in the, in the workplace. Um, so just never stop learning would mm-hmm. be my biggest advice to current leaders. Keep on reading. Anything oh, also, anything by um, Harvard Business Review is amazing stuff. Case studies and, and all kinds of great information out there. So there's a ton of information on how to do things.
0: Even further, so like you read something, you might read a book and you might take four or five you know, nuggets out of that book. I would recommend that you take that and you put that into play. And you would tell your team, listen, I just did a little bit of learning. I'm going to try A, B, and C. And we're, I'm going to try this for the next, let's say, month. And I'm going to want you to help me because I'm going to develop this. This is me honing my own skills. This is me flexing my own skills. And I don't know if I'm going to get it right, but I really am going to lean on you for feedback so it can be feed forward. So as I'm leading us through this, I'm going to want to touch base with you sometimes, once, twice, three times. And I really want you to give me the most radical candor you can give me because your feedback is going to produce the mm-hmm. ultimate results. So I think that communication loop, that biofeedback loop is really important, but I also think as you're making these changes and as you're developing yourself as a leader, you want to bring your community with you. So it's not all of a sudden you've been this type of autocratic leader and now all of a sudden you're the servant leader and everyone's like, who the hell is Sally? Where did Sally go? And they don't know how to behave. But if Sally went to them and said, right, all of a sudden you're like, "Who, who, who, what? I'm scared. You're terrifying me. Who's this person? But if you tell them, I've been this autocratic leader and now I'm going to be the servant leader because I just read all this great work and this methodology and the theories around it. And I've read all the case studies and I've watched the TED Talks and I've listened to the podcasts and this really speaks to my spirit. And so I really want to develop me being a servant leader. And this is what it looks like. But if you don't tell anybody you're doing it, you're going to fail. So having that communication and that feedback. Yeah. What are they thinking? What are they seeing? What are they fe- what are they doing? And it can be as simple as, and it's a really hard question for uh, us leaders to ask in terms of feedback. It's very hard because we always put it towards ego. But it's as simple as, what should I start doing? What should I stop doing? And what should I continue doing? Mm-hmm. And just listen. Because yep. it's their perspective. Could be right, could be wrong. But you don't have to take it as right or wrong. You can just take it as nuggets of information. What you do with that information is entirely up to you, but that information is really valuable if you want to continue on your leadership continuum. Are you going to write a book, Pam?
1: <laughs> I'm thinking about it. I am seriously I think you considering should. it.
0: Of all of your and leadership, I've got a title out.
1: <laughs> What's the title? It didn't go exactly as planned, <laughs> <laughs> and that's okay. <laughs> You can recover anyway. (laughs) Is that that the leadership lesson? um, I think it is kind of, you know, I think it's really, it's probably my biggest life lesson, honestly, is that, you know, sometimes you think that things are going to go a certain way and they don't, but Mm -hmm. you can adapt and you can change and grow through the the thing, through whatever it was that you didn't think you could survive. Mm -hmm.
0: And you're a walking, talking testament of that.
1: Yeah, so it's you know, we've talked a lot about my um about my professional life, but you know, I've had a quite a few bumps in the in the road on a on a personal level as well. And it's mm. some things, you know, are just they're hard to overcome, but you're still here on the planet for a reason. So yeah. what's what is it and are you pursuing, you know, your calling? Are you doing what you are here to do Mm because if you're still here you're here to do something so do it figure out what it is and go do it what's the
0: one leadership lesson that has stayed with you your whole entire
1: life humility Mm. realizing that i'm not any better than anybody else i'm uh, you know uh, occasionally i'm brilliant and okay more often, I'm a complete idiot. So, it you know, it runs the whole gauntlet. And those moments that I'm not my best, I have to be able to say, you know what, I'm human, and I screwed that up. What can I do to make it right and move on from there? And I think humility and and realizing that people people don't work for you. They work for themselves. They are working to keep their lights on, to keep a roof over their head, food on their table. They work for themselves Mm. and for their own reasons. And being able to, how can you support them to do that even better is really, I think, the mark of what a true leader is.
0: Yeah, that's leadership in action. Pam, I cannot thank you enough for spending time with me this afternoon. It has been Such a privilege. Such a pleasure. I cannot wait to read your book. You must get on that.
1: (laughs) On top of all the other things you do in life. (laughs) I'll see what I can do.
0: (laughs) Thanks so much for joining and sharing.
1: Thank you, Alison. It's been a a pleasure.
0: Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Live, Learn, Lead with me, Alison Geskin. Don't forget to hit subscribe or follow. And a great free way to support this podcast is to review and rate it. Always remember, my friends, that the most powerful thing you can be is you.